Good evening to you all. I'd like to talk to tonight about effort and about maintaining skillful effort in particular. Often when we hear this word effort, it can bring up a number of things. We may, for instance, have the idea that it involves trying really, really hard with a kind of pushing or insisting with the idea in mind that we need to get someplace or make something happen. But that's not exactly what we're talking about in this practice. Which isn't to say there isn't a need for courage and effort and commitment to effort. But it's more about integrity of effort than it is about a rigid kind of attempt to impose your will on what's going on. So I think I'll start by talking about the place of effort within the classical teachings. And as we know, uh, the foundational teachings of the Buddha are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And wise effort is the sixth step on the Eightfold Path, followed by wise mindfulness, and followed then by wise concentration. And these are the last steps on the path, and together they're considered to be the concentration set. And if you remember that, it's really wisdom that liberates from delusion, from suffering. Then you can see how these three things work together. Because in order to get the kind of sustained, close-in knowing represented by wise concentration, there first needs to be the establishment of wise mindfulness. And in order for that to become established, there needs to be wise effort. So there's a kind of wholesome energy that's called for in making this establishment of mindfulness happen. And this is sometimes described in terms of the four great endeavors or the four undertakings that uh, we're called upon to perform in doing this practice. So the first of these is preventing a rising of unarisen, unwholesome states, which is a double negative and not that, <laughs> that easy to understand at first uh, hearing. Prevent a rising of unarisen, unwholesome states. So if we were going to sloganize that, we'd say, don't get yourself in trouble. Don't open up uh, the door to it. And of course, when we're talking about unwholesome states, we're talking about uh, the defilements of mind, meaning greed, hatred, and aversion, and their 
relatives and offshoots. In other words, variations on suffering. So if we're going to look at how you actually do that, how you prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states, then you would, you would say, well, the first thing is sila, the practice of the precepts. And then you would say sense restraint, meaning don't let the mind just kind of wander all over and do whatever it wants to do without any kind of uh, care or attention being given to where it's wandering. Because it wanders usually into uh, places that uh, have to do with the defilements. It's kind of an easy downhill course. Um, And the habit or the conditioning uh, tends to go in that direction. So sense restraint actually um, is important. And in fact, if you were a renunciate, sense restraint would be a very, very major part of what you practice all the time. Then another way we can accomplish this first of the great endeavors is by maintaining strong and continuous mindfulness. Because mindfulness itself suppresses unwholesome states when it's strong and continuous. And of course, we all realize that that's kind of a, well, good luck with that one, right? So the second great endeavor addresses the, the fact that, well, you know, they're going to slip through. They're going to arise. They're going to be present. So the, great, the second great endeavor is to abandon unwholesome states already arisen. So compare and contrast this with other ways we can be with unwholesome states that have to do with identification with them, being lost in them, and operating from them. So, of course, this is the zone of the hindrances that is being talked about here, where an unwholesome state is present. So if we're going to sloganize this one, we'd say, well, don't cling to suffering when it arises. Guy last night talked about some of the hindrances and mentioned that there are offshoots of greed, hatred, and delusion that arise in the course of meditation practice in particular. So the thing that these states do is that is they obscure the mind, they weaken awareness, and then they make it difficult to see and observe moment-to-moment experience. So in losing awareness, and losing wise mindfulness, then there's not the basis for the establishment of concentration, since these things build upon each other. So in working with the hindrances, the overall picture of what you need to do is it's always about restoring mindfulness. It's always about bringing that back online. And when this mindfulness or clear seeing is reestablished and maintained, then concentration will arise. This is lawful. Concentration will arise if mindfulness is present and sustained.
And when concentration is present, then the knowing of reality, moment to moment, is possible. And the mind begins to, in a sense, fill in a, the kind of jigsaw puzzle of its understanding. It starts to get a, a clearer, big picture of what's going on through its assembling of the insights and the intuitions and the understandings that arise moment by moment into a deeper kind of more comprehensive gestalt of what's really going on. And we we talked about what the hindrances were. Sense, desire, and ill will are the two big heavy ones. Uh, Dullness and drowsiness, better known as sloth and torpor, and then restlessness and worry and doubt. And a key point here is wise attention to these. So it's not as if any old kind of attention is really going to do it in relationship to the hindrances. Because very often we are aware that these things are, are happening, they're present. But there's an identification with them, or there's a fighting with them, a, re, a rejection of the fact that they're there, or a judgment of the fact that they're there, or an unwillingness to really turn towards them and be present with them because they're difficult or unpleasant or not what we really want. But remember, the primary task is always to restore mindfulness. And there are a number of techniques to to do this, of course. There's the knowing of it. Uh, It's present. And in cases where the hindrance is kind of a fast-moving one, a bit of a clipper system, that's enough. It'll just, uh, it can be known, it will move through on its own. There's nothing that needs to be done. In the case of some of the more long-lasting ones, investigation really becomes a primary technique to work with them where you really, you know, intentionally turn the mind specifically towards them and notice uh, with as much specificity as you can what's really going on there. So if you have, for instance, a mushroom cloud experience of, uh, say, sense desire... The mind, <clears throat> the mind could turn towards it and say, oh, what is it? Okay, well, first there's like a, a fantasy and it's visual. And then there's pleasantness with that fantasy. Then there's enjoyment of that. And then I notice the, the wanting more. Then I notice the discontent with being here. Uh, uh, the desire to uh, get up and... go to the food shelf and uh, get it and eat it and then there's restlessness and then there's worry and then there's impatience you know so you just stay with it with a moment by moment uh, way of noting it perhaps just like you were a sportscaster watching a soccer match or something you know there's a yeah, there's a kick, there's a you know, block. A, you, know, you stay with it, just like that. Present tense, present tense. You know, sometimes it's possible to, to let it go or just redirect attention. Um, that's another strategy. Or there's the, the possibility of employing specific remedies. And 
uh, Guy mentioned last night. For instance, if you know if you're having an ongoing deep difficulty with with aversion, it can be really skillful to undertake doing some meta practice, maybe doing some uh, meta periods of practice, maybe doing some meta practice right at the beginning of of sittings. And when you connect with them skillfully, they'll weaken and decrease. In other words, their occurrence in the mind will be less frequent, and their strength when they arise will be less. And gradually, by this way of working with continual mindfulness, the actual ecology of the mind starts to shift. So the mind becomes less hospitable to these unwholesome states and they're less likely to arise within it. And conversely, the mind becomes more hospitable to the arising of wholesome states and they arise more frequently, last longer, and are stronger. And when they pass away, they're more likely to be replaced by other wholesome states. So this mindfulness and the effort uh, that we take to arouse it and apply it in these ways is like having exactly the right pH for your garden. It suppresses certain kinds of plants and it supports the ones that you want to have. And so the third great endeavor is actually to arouse wholesome states that haven't yet arisen And if we were going to have a slogan for that, we could say, wise attention makes wholesome seeds sprout. And this whole process of uh, wise attention really begins with how the meditation instructions are framed. The way the instructions are given really coaches on the right attitude to take and how to look at things, how to have wise attention in relationship with them. In other words, how to establish mindfulness in relationship to whatever you experience. And this quality of mindfulness is so key because it is the first of the seven factors of awakening that awaken in turn once mindfulness is established. If mindfulness is well established and continuous, then there arises investigation, which you could say is actually uh, a very, very close uh, cousin to mindfulness itself, followed by energy, followed by rapture, PT, and then tranquility and Uh, finally, concentration. So it's kind of like the the head of the horse uh, or the gentle leader uh, that you might uh, use on a puppy. If If the initial leading of the mind is through mindfulness, then the rest of it comes along. And then the fourth endeavor is to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. And if we were going to slogan it, we would say it's wise attention enriches the soil. When you connect with these states mindfully, they increase.
So that's a way of describing how we're focusing effort. These things are happening when we're summoning this mindful relationship with things and holding a consistent way of relating to experience no matter what the experience is. So I said when uh, I started that this effort that's called for requires energy and it requires a kind of energy that's sometimes uh, called virya, which is almost uh, heroic uh, in its nature. It's like, okay, this is what must be done and let's go. Let's do it. Let's get on with it. All right. It's going to happen. I'll sit. I'll do it. Right? Willingness. A kind of real willingness and commitment behind it. So, you know, finding a motivation is really important because you have to be motivated to have that kind of approach, that kind of energy uh, for this. So having described what we need to do, which is basically establish mindfulness and maintain it with every kind of experience, moment by moment, knowing that when we do this within the context of the Eightfold Path, the mind purifies itself. If we really can accept that as a tentative truth, that would be a big motivation to make that kind of effort that has virya. And it's true, if the mind continues on the course of moment-by-moment mindfulness and awareness becomes powerfully continuous, the mind learns how it creates suffering and how it can release it. And it wises up from within through direct seeing, through direct seeing itself. So how can we support the mind in being able to actually do this? Because we've basically described, if we can only do this, this is the key to our liberation. This is the key to our own unbinding of suffering direct through our direct self-effort, through our own effort, through our own seeing, not reliant on any other Uh, being, not relying on anybody else's word for it, but right through developing our capacity to see in a certain way and to keep seeing that way until things clear up in a big way. So there's a very important uh, principle in practice, and it has to do with wise intention and incorporating wise intention into how we hold what we're doing. I talked a little bit about this when I did the guided metta practice and I said something to the effect of this is a very important quality in practice, this metta and um, 
It's uh, close companion, compassion. Because if the mind has kindness in it, if, if it has compassion in it, if, if it approaches this task of meditation with this as part of its context, it makes it a lot easier. Because we will have established a kind of foundational loyalty to ourselves and to our well-being that we can draw on when things get difficult. There can be that internal self-support instead of the mind falling easily into self-judgment or blame or shaming or getting out the uh, internal uh, uh, ruler and, you know, slapping, <laughs> slapping ourselves with it. Oh, that was sleepy, you're sleepy, you don't know what you're doing here, what are you doing here, or I'm, oh, aversion, oh, I'm such a, such a hateful person, and, you know, look at all these other people, they're so tranquil, and just filled with love. And never a nasty thought crosses their mind, and here's me, and I'm just filled with judgment about everyone I see. Right? If, if, the, if the mind is having the, that kind of thought and that kind of suffering arise in it, that kind of internal torment, if the reaction when you realize, oh, this is aversion, this is what's happening, is to kind of like double down on it, you get into a downward spiral with what's happening. If instead the mind uh, remembers, oh, compassion, this is suffering, this is suffering, this is really difficult, or remembers the voice of loving kindness, okay, the mind is really being being bad right now. <laughs> oh, it really needs a little help. Okay, it's okay, baby. Or the way I sometimes I say it is, you know, when you when you come when you realize that this is happening and you come back to some sort of awareness and recognize it, give the mind a little sugar. Give it a little sugar. Okay. Give it a little sugar. Okay, or agave nectar if you don't do sugar. But you know, <laughs> give it give it a little something. All right. And remembering this wise and in, wise intention is re- is really really part of that. Because this is about making friends with your mind and beginning to be able to let go of the pattern that is is present of having one one uh a rising of mind uh, attack another. Right? We're trying to hold it in a bigger field of care and, and kindness and allow uh, things to manifest as they must given the, the causes and conditions. And still remember the big picture of it is nonviolence. <laughs> nonviolence towards uh, what's arising, nonviolence towards the self. So if the punitive mind arises, can there be compassion? Compassion towards the suffering that's part of that conditioned uh, pattern of uh, thought and emotion.
So another important principle in summoning this kind of courageous effort is to really ground yourself in the deepest motivation that you have available. To really call that to mind consciously. So there are a few different aspects of this. And one of them is aspiration. Reflecting on why you, why you came here, what you hope to learn and how you hope to grow from this rather extreme experience. I mean, it is kind of out there, isn't it? I mean, did you find that when you told your friends and family that you were going to be going away for six weeks or three months and you're going to go to this place way out in the woods and you're going to like, no, you wouldn't be calling and you (laughs) wouldn't be writing and no, you wouldn't be texting and oh, and you wouldn't be sending mail and oh, you wouldn't be talking either. And there were, you know, I imagine that there are a few people that were like, hmm? <laughs> I remember once I told uh, a, a woman that I knew, uh, I was leaving a job or something, and, I, and she said, well, why are, you, why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you leaving? Why are you quitting? You have another job or something? I said, well, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to do this retreat. And... Um, she asked about it, and you know, so I just sort of described some of the things I've just featured. <laughs> and she looked at me, and there was kind of like a pause, and she said, Well, if you think it'll help. <laughs> okay. okay. So you wanted something when you came here, right? So aspiration-wise, you've gone to a lot of trouble to get here. So reflect on that. Reflect on your own mortality and practice while the practicing is good. Because life is short and the body is unpredictable, very unpredictable. You know, to have relative health, to have good enough health to be able to do this, um, that's not guaranteed. At some point, that's no longer going to be available. So you're here. You've got enough health of body and mind to do this. Really do it. So related to aspiration, but a little bit different, is motivation. And I, I've had some very happy, uh, happy moments in interviews with folks. Um, and I've really been struck by the number of people that have said at some point in their interview or explicitly said on their application that they're, they're here because it has something to do with service. It has something to do with uh, their community. It has something to do with learning things that they can share with others. It has something to do with, with helping. 
And that makes me feel really happy. And I've been teaching a little while, not as long as Joseph and Guy and Carol, but for a while. And I've never had a a group of yogis where so many people have said that explicitly. And that... uh, that shows something about motivation. And let that remembering that that's part of your intention really keep you going. That was a very important part of my own uh, intention in starting Dharma practice. And in particular, it was something that was very present at the first three-month retreat that I did here. And I was in a a big dukkha cycle um, (laughs) when I came here, which actually is a great thing to have happening when you start a three-month retreat, because, you know, I won't say it can only go up from there, but, because it can go down, believe me. (laughs) It can go down, but then it, you know, it does, you know, it does, it does come up. But I was in a big dukkha cycle and, you know, I had a lot of aversion. I had a, a lot of anger come up. I had a lot of... And the way, way I, I worked with my mind, and this kind of happened intuitively, was because I realized that there was uh, a lot of suffering and that was part of... Uh, what was bound up in my uh, own aversion was I would pick out particular sittings, especially during periods of time where I really didn't want to do it. You know, I really didn't want to do it or I didn't really feel like doing it. You know, it was like hard to be completely wholehearted. It was uh, too much, uh, too much suffering, too much sadness, too much, you know, going on too long. It was really hard to make the effort. And I would pick out particular sittings and particular walkings. And at the beginning of those, I would pick out particular individuals or uh, groups that I really wanted to dedicate the merit to. So for instance, um, at the beginning I would think of uh, people who are dying alone now. That was one that came. Or um, uh, women and children who are being uh, subject to, subjected to violence, or people who are living in uh, refugee camps, or um, people who are uh, elderly and have no uh, connection with others, right? And it, I, I found it really had a pretty amazing effect because it like completely dropped the resistance I had to doing the practice. And it was, it was like this uh, uh, warrior energy arose and it's like, oh. huh? So if this is an important mo- motivation for you, you re- want to reflect on um, those intentions when it gets tough. You know, having benefited and seen the power of this dharma and these practices, imagine the impact on 
your families and your communities if this was more available. And I mean more available in terms of being taught there, but I also mean more available in terms of being manifested there in you, in how you are. You know, you, you, we all, are actually sitting for our communities. It's not just metaphorical. There's a lot on the cushion there besides the limited self-sense that we have. There's our conditioned learnings from our family, from the larger culture in which we live, and some of it has deep suffering bound up in it. There's even the inherited tendencies of body and mind. Bonnie and I were talking a few days ago about epigenetics. Has anybody here heard of that? Epigenetics? Yeah, a few people. It's very interesting. Talk about the interpenetration of reality and how our actions have effects in the immediate sense, but also in deep time. So basically, it's becoming increasingly clear, and there's a whole field of study in this now, that what, you know, we have our genetic heritage that we get from our parents, but then that genetic heritage is modified by our environment, by our experience, and by what we learn. So genes are actually turned on and off, and their expression is modified depending on these things. And not only is that true, but that the the changes that happen in our genetic expression are inheritable. That's very deep, right? And if, for instance, say the tendency towards anxiety or the tendency towards uh, depression, the tendency, you know, some of the other tendencies, high blood pressure, some of these other things. When we were born, we inherited in a certain sense, our parents' experience, not just from what they told us and how they acted towards us, but physically. We've got the deep history of our our ancestors in us. And the most amazing thing about it is, as we work with the inheritance that we have, including the inheritance of various forms of suffering, uh, some of which comes from trauma, comes from uh, persecution uh, and oppression of groups, uh, the heritage of wars, the heritage of genocide. This is there uh, in our body. When we 
bring mindfulness, when we establish this sense of inner safety, when this inner learning takes place, when we begin to bring the mind of love to experience, when we create uh, internal security and safety and compassion and metta. Some of those are getting switched in a different direction. Things are getting turned on, they're getting turned off, and they're inheritable. And I've said on, uh, this isn't something I would say to everybody I meet, but on a few occasions when I've been working with somebody who's young, who's had, for instance, a lot of uh, anxiety or or something like that where there's clearly a genetic factor, I've sometimes said to them, um, to help them build motivation, are you thinking of having children? Because, you know, are you thinking of having children? Well, there's some things you can learn here. There's some, you can actually change and alter something that otherwise would have been, at least in some cases. So our families and communities and our ancestors are sitting with us. And our descendants as well. So it's important to follow the North Star of aspiration and motivation. And realize we really aren't just doing it for ourselves. Not that that in itself wouldn't be enough. But that's not all that's happening. So another way of maintaining incentive or motivation to continue to make effort is to kind of trim down the scope of the endeavor. I just went really big with this, you know, talking about deep time and, you know, ancestors and descendants and biological changes and and the rest of that. But there's another way that we can firm up our resolve and willingness to make effort, and that has to do with trimming down the size of the task so it doesn't seem so overwhelming, this task of being continuously mindful and in the present. So here's the tip. Stay strictly in the present. Just the present. So this is the only thing that's happening, right? This present. That's, it's always one time. What was somebody saying a few nights ago? It's only A. Well, it's only present. That's the only thing that's ever happening. So we don't need to do anything more than stay there. So, memories of the past, present moment experience. Thoughts about the future, present moment experience. It's all just present. That really cuts down a lot of responsibility for the periphery, doesn't it? It seems a lot more doable, because then the question in coming back is always, well, what is actually happening right now? 
right now, if you were going to describe your experience using the language of mindfulness, what would you say it is right now? Right now, what is it? Let's see. Hearing, seeing, smelling, touching, tasting, or something going on in the mind or... That's it. And we don't need to know more than that. All we need to do is to be able to go step by step, step by step. It's right here, right now. Follow follow the path. There's enough light to see moment by moment, and that's all that is needed. We don't need to know the end. We don't need to know the next minute. We just need to connect with now, station the mind in the now, connect with now, and keep it there. The path unfolds by itself, and we don't need to do anything except except provisionally that this does go someplace. Let's accept it provisionally. We don't have to completely believe it. Let, let's accept it provisionally and give it a try. There's a song that was very common in Harriet Tubman's time. People know who Harriet Tubman was. There's this little five-foot-tall woman who was an incredible, uh, had incredible faith and courage, and was uh, did a number of things. But she was enslaved in, in the uh, the United States, escaped herself, became a person who would go back south to plantations where other enslaved people were. She would go in right under the noses of the plantation owners and get groups of people and take them on a journey from the plantations up north and uh, in many cases right into Canada to escape uh, the reach of uh, the law that tried to assert that people were property and to bring them back into enslavement. And this woman was amazing. She had incredible intuition. As she said towards the end of her life, that she never lost a passenger on the Underground Railroad. And she would move by, by intuition. Now people talk about being part of the group that she was leading out. And with no apparent signs, for instance, she would suddenly say, uh, stop and disperse and hide. And then sure enough, some search party would come along and they would all be hidden and, and uh, they would be safe. And then she would, she would move on. So she had great faith and great intuition and great confidence in her intuition. 
And one of the, the songs that was common uh, during her time that was sung by the enslaved people is a song called Follow the, the Drinking Gourd. And the drink, when they're, they're talking about the drinking gourd, they're talking about the Big Dipper. And you know, two of, the, two of the stars on the Big Dipper, if you line them up, uh, point to the North Star. So this song was really a code for saying north, go north. And, and the enslaved people would, would sing this. This was a commonly sung song. And they would th- kind of, the people who had the plantations must have heard this song many times, but apparently its meaning escaped them because the meaning, of course, was as soon as I can, I'm getting out of here and I'm going north and we're all going to go north, and we're going to follow the drinking gourd. So the words of the song were, uh, when the sun come back and the quail calls, follow the drinking gourd, for the old man awaiting to carry you to freedom if you follow the drinking gourd. The riverbank make a very good road, the dead trees show you the way, left foot, right foot, travel on, follow the drinking gourd. There's another river on the other side. Follow the drinking gourd. When the great river meets the little river there, follow the drinking gourd. Left foot, right foot, travel on. Follow the drinking gourd. And that's what we're really called to do in walking this path moment by moment to trust, to hold that aspiration, to hold that North Star of our intention, aspiration, motivation, and then just in trust to be present one step after another, one step after another. That's all that is really required. So a last thing to say about this kind of effort is that to the extent you can lay down the measuring stick, you're going to be better off. Because the habitual tendencies of mind, the conditioned tendencies of mind, are going to manifest themselves. They're going to show up. You'll see your suffering. You'll see your suffering. You bring mindfulness to it. You're applying the Dharma medicine. You're applying the medicine that you need to weaken and ultimately uproot these suffering states. And sometimes the the taste of this is bitter. And that's why courage is required. And the remembering of your motivation when you sit in the flames. If we're willing to recognize and acknowledge anything that's experienced, it would be well. And what can arise can be very surprising. And when the mind opens at very deep, deep levels, um, unusual uh, kinds of experiences that uh, can happen. I had a, an experience like this when. Um, uh, I was just coming off retreat. 
and my my mind was actually happy and open. I felt really uh, balanced. Things were well. Mine was steady. And for some reason, I, I put on this piece of music that I'd had for a long time, but I'd never listened to. It was kind of like one of those uh, first sensory experiences that you're choosing to have coming off retreat when the senses are all very fresh and everything is open. And the piece of music that I chose to put on was a piece of music called Famine. And um, this is a classical composition that, uh, by a contemporary composer that was written to commemorate the Great Famine in Ireland in the 1840s and 50s when uh, many millions of uh, uh, people were either kicked out of the country and forced to immigrate or died of starvation there. Um, even though food in the country was uh, readily available, it was not uh, available to the people, the native people there. Uh, it was in, instead being exported by uh, uh, the occupiers. And on my maternal side of the family, they're all Irish, and it's an in- interesting. Um, it's an interesting thing the way uh, uh, the Irish have ha- kind of handled this uh, kind of gaping <laughs> crater of horror in their history, because as is the case sometimes with other communities. It's almost like they didn't have words for it, right? So um, there was a silence around it that really, in some ways, has only started to be uh, broken in the relatively near term. So, for instance, when my mother's family came, you know, some of them had to get out of Dodge because they were, you know, agitators. Um, some of them were starved out and were put on the boats. Some of them just like needed to get away because they needed to get away. And so I, I, I grew up knowing that this was this was part of the family history, and it was talked about, but it was almost like an aside. And I never really uh, heard the personal stories, which is interesting because in my maternal lineage, there's a lot of personal stories like stories about the great-grandparents, and the, but not about this. So anyway, I put on this piece of music. And I started listening to it. And I had this huge upswelling of the deepest kind of grief. And I found myself... And I'm not normally a big crier, but I found myself down on the floor, rolled up in a fetal position, crying, you know, the full snot running down, you know, the face crying, with like these body sensations of despair, deep despair, deep despair. And there was enough mindfulness in it 
that the mind was there with it. It could observe it as it was happening. And the thought arose in the mind like, this isn't just mine, (laughs) right? This isn't just mine. This is something that was there to be felt. So, you know, we can have these, these surprising experiences. You know, especially when there is uh, sorrow or pain carried. And we can let it move through. We can let it be as it is. We can let it move through. When it's present, we can experience it. For the ones that couldn't experience it, perhaps when it was happening. You know, we can always uh, experience deep shifts in understanding. A sudden breakthrough and oh, that's what's going on. <laughs> oh, this is how reality operates. Oh, I see now. Oh, I see that when I do this, I suffer more. When I don't do this, it's okay. Sudden upswellings of joy or feelings of well-being, even in difficulty. All of these kinds of experiences are part of the range that you can know on retreat. Deep states of pleasure and joy. While it's true that at any given moment only one thing can arise given the totality of causes and conditions, Many of those causes and conditions aren't actually evident, right? So hence, you can have the experience of something kind of coming up, arising out of seemingly nowhere to be known. And that's why it's important to lay down the measuring stick. Because you don't know why something's coming up. You know, sometimes we kind of do this retroactive interpretation of events and we'll go, ah... Now, why did that happen? Why did that mind state come up? What was I doing right before that? You know, was it because I had that extra cup of tea or was it, you know, I I just wasn't trying hard enough or, you know, we try to, yeah, it's gone. Come back, come back. Go with the flow. Stay here. Go with what's happening. Open and connect. Allow, open, connect, allow. Open, connect, allow. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, follow the drinking gourd. Okay. So my wish for you is that you all find the place of wise effort. That you dig, dig deep into your motivations and make them conscious. And use them to fuel the effort that you make while you're on this retreat to establish continuity of mindfulness for your own benefit and for that of all beings. So let's just sit for a moment.
May the merit of our practice be for our own liberation and that of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.